0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Minns.
1: This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zelensky. Emily Lau is one of the most famous politicians in Hong Kong. She was the leader of the Democratic Party and the first woman to be elected into Hong Kong's legislature former journalist, Emily is a passionate defender of press freedoms and free speech. Emily joined me for a chinwag about the current mood in Hong Kong, what one country, two systems actually means, how the Beijing crackdown is hardening the position of protesters, how young people are inspiring their fellow citizens, why Western businesses and governments should stand up to CCP bullying, and what a peaceful resolution looks like. It's an inspiring and illuminating chat. As ever, if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review. Working the algorithm on my behalf, it really helps. I do get in there and read them, so please be sure to be sharing the show. Enjoy the episode. So, Emily, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And i uh, just say for the recording, uh, we are talking through the Miracle Video uh, conferencing technology, and you are currently in Hong Kong, and I'm currently in Sydney. So, welcome and thank you. Um, I thought of first place for us to start. I mean, there's so much going on at the moment um, in Hong Kong. I thought you might be able to give us a bit of a sense of the mood right now in Hong Kong. There's a lot of reporting, but what's the mood like on the ground amongst people?
0: Well, I think the mood is still tense because people are still demanding that the administration of Carrie Lam should respond to our all these legitimate demands and requests and uh, she has uh, acceded to one, which is withdrawing the extradition bill from the Legislative Council, and that happened yesterday. And you see, it's taken almost five months to do that. And now and uh, there are other demands, but one is very critical, and that is the setting up of an independent commission of inquiry to look into, not just to target the police and investigate police brutality which the whole world has seen for over four months but also to look into the whole saga and what why did it blow up and what happened and of course to find out what lessons hong kong can learn that a city which is so safe and so peaceful can suddenly just crumble before the world's eye and that's very important but she Carrie lam refused and this Legitimate requests is not only supported by the pro-democracy camp, the peaceful protesters and some of the radical protesters, but also supported by population at large, even those in the pro-Beijing camp. So we're waiting for her to do that. And as we speak this morning... There were peace, peaceful demonstrations in the morning. People just march on their way to work, uh, chanting slogans and so on. So, so people are not going to
1: stop. Um, so, and that's that's fascinating. So thank you for that. And we'll dig into, the, I guess, the protests and, and how those have played out. I'm curious, you know, you've lived in Hong Kong a very long time, you've been a very prominent uh, politician um, throughout your career in Hong Kong. Curious for a historic overview about how Hong Kong has maybe changed um, since 1997, and given uh, that was the turning point from when we had British rule uh, and now, uh, you know, a two, par- a two systems, one country rule under the Chinese Communist Party. How has Hong Kong changed in that time? Has it changed? And then what are the changes you, you've seen um, over that period?
0: Well, of course, Hong Kong has changed. Before 97, we were a British colony. In fact, we, we were a British colony for one and a half centuries. And uh, Britain wanted to hang on, but China disagreed. So Britain had to pull out. But regrettably, when Britain pulled out, Hong Kong did not have a democratic government. The people had no right to choose the government and there were very little protection of human rights. And so it was really quite terrible, but the Hong Kong people sort of accepted it winning lily because most of us were ethnic Chinese, And most of the people accept that Hong Kong is Chinese soil. And then China came out and reassured the Hong Kong people and said, don't worry, uh, we will not send communist cadres to Hong Kong to run the place. You Hong Kong people will run Hong Kong. But of course, unfortunately, these Hong Kong people are not elected by us. They have a very convoluted form of election whereby power rests with the political and the business elites who of course will always look up to beijing but initially it was okay in a sense that beijing did not interfere and uh, but then when beijing tried to pass law to affect our freedoms and safety people uh, began you know demonstrating and the first big march was in uh, 2003 the law on national security and because so many people marched, some of the uh, pro-business uh, legislators then changed their mind, refused to support. So the bill had to be abandoned. And then, uh, and then, but Beijing started getting very worried because so many people could march. So they started sending more and more of their people to Hong Kong to interfere, to find out what's going on. Uh, And and, but still, they would not allow us to have democratic political reform. And then you see, as you can see, in 2014, we had the Umbrella Movement where uh, protesters, including myself, we occupy the uh, central business district and in Causeway Bay and in Mong Kok for 79 days, we blocked the roads. Uh, there one was, was not that much violence, but of course it ended in uh, us being arrested. But you know, uh, no, no democracy. And now this time round, this protest, or um, almost coming up to five months of protest, was triggered by an extradition bill which Kerry Lam proposed to extradite someone who went to Taiwan with a girlfriend, killed her, and came back. And Taiwan wanted Hong Kong to send the man to Taiwan for trial. But we have no extradition arrangement. And Carrie Lam came up with this bill, and not just to enable them to send people to Taiwan for trial, but to send to mainland China and to Macau and to all the countries that we have no such arrangement. And people are very frightened because... We, we in Hong Kong, under China's policy of one country, two systems, it is true that the people here, the seven million odd people here, we do enjoy freedoms and human rights, personal safety and the rule of law, which the people in mainland China do not enjoy. And of course, uh, some of them are envious of us, And some, when they come to Hong Kong, they are very free. But once they go back to the mainland, they are not free. So uh, people in Hong Kong don't want to be extradited to China for trial because there is no legal independence, no independence of the judiciary. And uh, I speak as a member of the board of directors of the China Human Rights Lawyers Concern Group. We formed the group here. 11 years ago, to support the human rights lawyers. They are very brave. And some of them are in jail for many years, being tortured, cannot see their families. That's the state of affairs there. So Hong Kong people are very frightened. Then Carrie Lam refused to withdraw the bill. And then they demonstrated and the police beat them up and all that. And now we are stuck. And she's still... You refuse to set up this commission of inquiry. Of course, people want democracy too. But I guess people are pragmatic enough to know that democracy will not happen next month or even next year. But to quiet things down, we need to have this commission of inquiry.
1: And so you mentioned there the extradition bill. How specific, How would that actually work? So, what would, what would? How would that practically be applied by uh, mainland China if um, if a bill was implemented by Hong Kong, but under Carrie Lam's plan, what would have actually happened to somebody materially? Could they have been arrested and taken across the border?
0: Uh, yes. Well, but they say the bill says that you have to have crimes, which uh you know, we have crimes in Hong Kong and the same same crime in mainland China. You cannot have something there that we don't have like you punish people for their political views for religious reasons or other things so it has to be like that but of course people have no confidence in mainland china in fact a few years ago they came to hong kong to snatch uh, somebody from the Causeway Bay bookshop because they were printing and selling books to the mainland which upset the chinese authorities so people have no confidence and in fact, for the last 22 years, ever since Hong Kong was returned to China, Hong Kong authorities have been negotiating with the mainland authorities for a deal on, on extradition or if it is within the same country, it's called rendition. But we could not get anywhere. So it's not as if we have not been trying, but we tried for 22 years and Could not do it. And there was no big trouble. I mean, it's not as if some people say, oh, Hong Kong has become a haven for fugitives. Well, the Chinese government did say they have 300 fugitives in Hong Kong. And they not only came, but they also took a lot of money to Hong Kong. But still, we could not get the arrangement. Then suddenly Carrie Lam came up with this thing, triggered by the Taiwan murder case. And with no... Very little consultation. You know, they just you just gave a few weeks for public consultation. Mm-hmm. Even some, some law on animal cruelty, they have three months. <laughs> but this one, just a few weeks, that's why people went berserk.
1: And so what are the specific demands that the, um, that the protesters have uh, so you mentioned uh, they wanted the withdrawal of the bill, but what else specifically are they looking for?
0: Well, of course, they want a democracy. Uh, that's number four. And they also want, because the government, uh, the police uh, uh, called this whole the, the protest as riots. And of course, they want them to withdraw that label. And anyway, the government said it's not for them to decide, it's for the court, finally. But they want them to decide, uh, to with, uh, withdraw that label. And they also, of course, want an amnesty uh, for all the protesters who were arrested. And some of them, of course, are very young. So, uh, and then the government again said, of course, there's no way we can uh, give amnesty. It's against the rule of law. But, of course... Uh, In the 1970s, in the last century, uh, we had this big row between the police and the offices of the Independent Commission Against Corruption, which, of course, was set up mainly to investigate corruption in the police force. And everybody knew at that time the police were very corrupt and the police were very angry and, uh, and they attacked the ICAC office. And so there was big, big friction and tension. And the then governor, Mary McLehose, gave an amnesty, say, "Okay, quiet down. But uh, is this going to happen? But I think we need the inquiry to look into it and to see whether people should be just released and not charged. And but anyway, we have over 2000 people arrested and many of them have not been charged. And many say that they were just arrested so indiscriminately. And actually, they were not guilty of anything. And the police arrested them. So that aggravated the anger. So those are the things that the protesters want.
1: And so you've, you've talked a bit there about the, the protesters. I'm sort of curious. There's been a long-going, ongoing protest, and um, in, increasingly the tensions have risen. What are the sort of risks... Uh, that protesters are taking uh, in continuing to to to, to demonstrate against um, against the actions of the CCP and Carrie Lam. I mean, what are the what are the sort of material risks that you're seeing um, in the, in that level of bravery that the citizenry are are exhibiting?
0: Well, actually, I mean, it, Hong Kong has long had a, a tradition and uh, of peaceful protests, even if you have over a million people protesting, you know, not one single bottle would be broken and not one single shop window would be broken and no vandalism and all that. That's what we're known for. And even this tourist guy, the Lonely Planet, they put Hong Kong in it a few years ago and asked people to come to Hong Kong and join the protests because they are so peaceful, so colourful. So that's what Hong Kong has been known for. But over this, this time round because uh, the police were quite uh, brutal. And some of the protesters, I must admit, they were also ready for action. Uh, They dug up the bricks in the road and so on. So when they started clashing, uh, it it changed the whole nature of our protests. And then, but if you join that sort of protest, and then the, the police started firing tear gas, and then rubber bullets, bean bags, and even live ammunition on a few occasions. And some people were critically injured. And then now they also have the water cannon, and they uh, use, and they add some color to the water. We don't know what other chemicals they put in the water. And a few days ago, they sprayed the, in the mosque, and so the imam was very very upset. And there were people standing outside, people from the Indian community, the Indian community leaders, they were all sprayed. So they were furious. They were not protesting. So uh, so anybody, if you join that part of the protests, because what sometimes happens is there's a peaceful protest. Sometimes the protests get the police permission. Sometimes they do not get. But even without the permission, we still march. I've taken part in those marches. But the first part, very peaceful, many people. And then came to the end or something, then many people went home. But the rest stayed, and then blocked the roads and started beating things up, smashing the railway station, because they say the railway station is being used as a tool of the police. So they started smashing them. Then if you do that the, and the police fought back, they fire all these things, then of course, it could be very dangerous. And an Indonesian journalist, a lady. A few weeks ago was shot in the eye with, with a beanbag and she has lost her eyesight. So it's uh, it could be very dangerous. And then more and more of the protesters are young people, very young, as young as twelve years old. And uh, and it's so and, and, and they're so galvanized. And the reason one of the reasons is the social media, the telegram and all these things. They go to the apps, they go to to find out what is the uh, proposal for action today, tonight, and they join. And then they see their peers. You know, there's people in the same school. They join, so they also go. Especially if they see their friends getting injured or arrested. They get very angry and they say, okay, let's go. So it is really, and some some of the schools, they can do nothing about it. And... uh, And the parents, the parents are also very worried if their kids go out like that. So some parents go and follow them to ensure they are safe. So, But but because there are people who are against this, so the society, the community is completely split asunder. Friends have split up. Even families split up. Because once you start talking about this, if you have different views, you start arguing, you start to shouting at each other. And in the end, you say, Oh, come on, forget it. i never see you again. So it is very, very sad.
1: And so, you know, it's well, when you talk about that division across society, you know, one of the things you think about is the leadership involved in this. I mean, you've talked about Carrie Lam. I mean, how has she handled this, in your opinion, this the, the way this has escalated and the backing down but doing it very late in the piece and letting it continue to build and build and build and the use of police and other things? How do you think that her leadership has stacks up in this context?
0: Well, I, th- I think she has no leadership. Uh, she, she disappeared, disappeared for a number of weeks when the thing first broke out. And then later when she met with some business people, and those are the people she would talk to, the rich and the powerful. She talked to those business people and she said, oh, some people thought I'm dead. Well, I'm still alive. I mean, really crazy. So she had no leadership whatsoever. And she made the bloody mistake. You know, when we marched, there were several marches before, but they were not very big. So I guess that gave her confidence that, oh, it's nothing, no big deal. And she also, of course, survived other crises in the past, like the disqualification of legislators, disqualification of candidates standing for election, and uh, still no big blow up, no big marches, and also the co-location of Chinese immigration and customs uh, facilities in Hong Kong which is against one country, two systems, because they are not supposed to implement their laws here. But all these, she survived. So as some people said, oh, she probably thought she could walk on water. So when this thing came along, she thought she would survive again. And also the pro-Beijing politicians in the Legislative Council, which is our parliament, they have a majority and they support it. So she thinks, well, I have enough votes. So on the 9th of June, there was a march because a few days later, the Legislative Council was going to vote on it without the scrutiny of a bill's committee. So already very tense. So on Sunday, they marched, and there was supposed to be the vote the following Wednesday. One million people marched. Very peaceful. No, nothing happened. Just marched. Before... The demonstrators went home, got home that night. Government issued a statement. We know the city has different views on this. We are going to go ahead with the vote on Wednesday. Isn't it crazy? One million. And then on Wednesday, of course, some of the protesters, young ones, older ones, were very mad. They went to the Legislative Council complex, surrounded it, and then would not let some of the politicians in to attend the meeting and started the clashes. How stupid. And then a few days later, she came out and said, okay, I will suspend the bill. But the people say, no, we want you to withdraw it. It's a proper procedure. You cannot just suspend. What does it mean? And then a few weeks later, she said, oh, The bill is dead. People say, what the hell? (laughs) There's no such terminology in parliamentary language. But as I told you, they formally withdrew the bill yesterday in the council. So it's taken more than four months to just withdraw the bloody thing. I mean, she is hopeless. And there were reports saying she offered to resign. She offered to Beijing. And Beijing said no. And so... uh, I mean, she is, I, it, just this morning on a phone-in program here, someone said, she is so awful, and the person is right. She said the whole society of Hong Kong has to suffer just because of the mistake of one person. And of course, he's not absolutely right. It's not just her mistake. It's also the mistake of those people in parliament who supported her and also her advisers. And, you know, all the pro-Beijing camps supported her. The business people supported her. Although the business people were very upset with the bill because they feel they are the first to be hit because they go to mainland China to do business all the time. And they say, if you do business there, you have to be corrupt. If there's no corruption, you can't do business. So we're going to be caught. And so they were very upset. And then Carrie Lam took out a few uh, offenses and they were forced to support it. But they had no guts. They should have come out, and they are the people that Beijing and Carrie Lam would listen to. But in the end, when Beijing said, "Yeah, support her," so they all shut up and support her. I mean, they're so they are so despicable.
1: And so um, there is you know, Carrie Lam. There are some upcoming elections. Um, maybe you can explain, firstly, how democracy. Or as it currently structured, works in Hong Kong and how those elections work? And then what do you think is likely to happen? Because there's talk about them being deferred or delayed. Um, so maybe you could explain a little bit about that.
0: Yes, well, as I said, Hong Kong has no democracy. Kerry Lam was chosen by a committee of 1,200 business and political elites. And the people who had a right to choose this committee of 1,200 is about... A quarter of a million, but they are mainly the business and political elites. And then in the parliament legislature, 70 members, half are chosen by the people, half by these elites called functional constituencies. And um, next month, we will have election to the district councils. Hong Kong has 18 district councils. Together, there are 400 odd members. And most of the members are elected by constituencies. But uh, now one thing that people are concerned about is whether one of the candidates, uh, Mr. Joshua Wong, who is a young leader, uh, whether his uh, qualification will be, uh, will be taken away, will be he, whether he will be disqualified. And because uh, I think Beijing and the authorities regard him as uh, you know, too close to America, and they are inviting foreign interference, and they say they support uh, self-determination, which Mr. Wong said they don't. They support everything within the one country, two systems uh, policy, and also they do not support independence. But still, they have not yet announced whether he can be qualified to stand. So that's one thing. And then yesterday, the government said that they have set up a committee, uh, a sort of a crisis committee, to decide whether there will be a crisis next month and whether the election of the district councillors will be postponed. And uh, and it can postpone it for within a period of two weeks uh, because if they see that there are too many protests unsafe and so on. So so the situation is very tense. And of course, one reason why they think of postponing is that uh, the the pro-Beijing parties, fear that they will lose many seats in the election. Right now, they have a majority in many of them. And, but they fear that this time around, the situation could change and they could lose their majority in many of the district councils. And to make matters even more sensitive, uh, the 400-odd district councillors have the right to elect 117 members of the committee which choose the chief executive, the 1,200 member committee. So whoever has a majority in the district councils, the winner, if you have more than half of the seats, you can automatically get the right to elect 117 members to the election committee for chief executive. So it, it will not just affect the district councils, which have no real power. But, of course, they still represent the people. They can speak out on district issues. But it will affect the election of the chief executive, which should take place in uh, 2022. And uh, so, of course, Beijing is very concerned because Beijing doesn't want the, 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 the right to elect the chief executive to be usurped. Right now, although it's 1,200 people who elect, but they listen to Beijing, you know, and only Candidates that Beijing like uh, will come forward to stand. So so it's uh, all, you know, all these things are linked. But if they cancel the election or postpone the election without good reason, I think it will cause a huge, huge international uproar. And I hope you people uh, in Australia, the media, the politicians, the government will speak out. How can you just cancel the election? If you come to Hong Kong now, it's very calm, although there are periodic, you know, uh, demonstrations. They just had an election in Afghanistan. (laughs) If they can do it there and also in Bolivia, where they are clashing. So, I mean, of course, I want people to calm down. Don't get me wrong. I think the situation should dial down, should de-escalate. And I have already told you what needs to be done to de-escalate. And I think we should have a calm environment for election. But the government should not use some excuse to postpone or to cancel the election.
1: And so what, uh, you know, you said obviously there's no uh, true democracy in in Hong Kong, you're a very pro, uh, a very uh, long standing pro-democracy politician and activist uh, in Hong Kong. What realistic prospects do you think there is for democracy? Um, in Hong Kong in the long term? And do you think that the one country, two citizens approach is going to last uh, for the duration of what it was promised?
0: Now, you're right. We don't have true democracy in Hong Kong. You sound as if there is (laughs) semi-democracy. Well, actually, democracy, my dear, is like pregnancy. Either you are pregnant or you are not. And of course, we are not, and we don't have democracy. But there is an irony. Although no democracy here, but the level of freedoms, civil liberties, personal safety, the rule of law, independence of the judiciary that the Hong Kong people have enjoyed for decades is much higher than many countries which have democracy. I would not say true democracy, but they have democracy. They have periodic elections, whether it's in Asia or elsewhere. And we can have a very long list of such countries and their people. And I think they will agree. They do not enjoy the level of freedoms and personal safety and the rule of law the independence of the judiciary which is the ultimate arbiter they don't enjoy so that is the irony so those are the things that we've enjoyed under british rule and under one country two systems and of course we think that if we can have democratic government then we can you know bolster those things even more and but now With these weeks and months of protests and demonstrations and clashes, all these things that we hold so dear to our hearts are crumbling before our very eyes. So the lesson to you people in Australia and elsewhere is that certain things which are very precious, universal core values that we have taken decades to build up can be destroyed in no time, my dear friend in no time. It's very sad. But speaking as someone who's been in this for so many decades, I'm not going to give up, although I have left parliament. I'm no longer in the leadership of my party. But I will not give up. I will never resign from the fight for human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. But we need to work with the people, with the masses, and. I certainly hope the government would listen to the demands, very legitimate, so that many of the protesters will not turn out to march anymore and there will not be violent clashes with the police. So otherwise, you know, we are really going to lose everything. And then, of course, some of the protesters say, oh, we burn, you burn with us. But I don't think too many Hong Kong people want to burn. We want to return to normality. But... We also want the administration to respond to our demands, which are very legitimate. It's not as if we're fighting for independence or self-determination. Now, those, I think many countries will not support. I don't think the Australian government will support. And uh, even look at Catalonia in Spain. I mean, many governments do not support it. But last night, we had a, a demonstration here supporting Catalonia. (laughs) And they had one there, then the two demonstrations together, supporting each other. But that was a a small demonstration in Hong Kong. They said 3,000 people turned up. Uh, By our current day standard, we easily talk about hundreds of thousands every time. But we're not fighting for those things. We're just fighting for one country, two systems, civil liberties, personal safety, and the rule of law. And But if the government wants to crush all that and the protesters, they're not going to give in. So it's going to get
1: worse. And so you've talked about Australia, but more generally, I think there's been a lot of concern globally around uh, the situation uh, in Hong Kong. What can uh, democratic governments around the world, like the Australian government and other governments do to support? How can we show support to the protests in Hong Kong?
0: Well, I think, first of all, I want to thank the inter- international community for supporting Hong Kong in the past few months. In fact, uh, one reason why Kerry Lam was willing to suspend the bill and all that was due to pressure from the international community and the business community. So they always just listen to the rich and the powerful. So they have spoken out, and of course we call on them to continue to speak out. And I fully understand. And some of them have told me, they said, we cannot support violence. And I said, I fully understand. I do not support violence too. So you can call on all, both all sides to dial down, but you should also call on the administration of Kerry Lam to accede to the demand to set up this independent commission of inquiry. And yesterday, There was a debate in the House of Lords in London, not on Brexit, although they're very preoccupied with Brexit, but it was on Hong Kong. And some of the Lords we spoke, and two of them were former governors of Hong Kong, Lord uh, Chris Patton and Lord David Wilson. And both of them support the setting up of the Independent Commission of Inquiry. And they also, of course, touched on the possibility of Hong Kong British citizens Because there are over 2 million uh, British citizens in Hong Kong, they hold the British National Overseas Passport, which does not give them the right of abode in the UK. I don't have one. And when people ask me, this is a BNO passport. I said, do you know what BNO stands for? It's Britain says no. It's disgraceful. (laughs) These are British citizens. So I'm glad to hear that in the House of Lords debate, They were talking about, uh, you know, possibility of giving these people a second home. And then, of course, there were also statements issued by uh, over 100 parliamentarians in the UK calling on countries of the Commonwealth, which should include Australia, to also come chip in to offer a second home to these people, should there be a need. So we are really calling on the international community. Uh, to be sympathetic, to be supportive. Of course, if everything goes right, Hong Kong people are not going to flee. Why should they go out? They're not going to become Hong Kong people like the Vietnamese did in the last century. But we need people to not just tell Carrie Lam, but to tell Beijing, tell President Xi Jinping, not to keep saying this is a colour revolution, The the foreigners are interfering, and want to uh, make Hong Kong an independent uh, entity, which is not true.
1: And so you've talked there about uh, you know, international pressure. One of the things that's interestingly happened recently, we you know we've had uh, people speaking out against uh, Beijing and its interference and, uh, and what's going on in Hong Kong. For example, we've had the NBA now uh, basically buckle. Uh, to pressure uh, from uh, the CCP and Beijing when uh, one of the coaches spoke out uh, again in support of the people of Hong Kong. I mean, that kind of uh, bullying of businesses like the NBA that have rely heavily um, on their uh, income from the Chinese market. How disappointing is that to the people of Hong Kong and how much does that sort of uh, deflate uh, the efforts underway uh, in protesting in Hong Kong?
0: Well, of course, that's a big problem. And I noticed that the Amer- American vice president, Mike Pence, just made a big speech and he uh, attacked the NBA. And, uh, but, you know, this, this problem is not just with the NBA. I think there are companies in Australia, uh, political parties in Australia, uh, politicians who love money, and the Chinese, although now, of course, they are not as rich as we think and their economy is not in very good shape. But they have a lot of money and they will go to many places to buy influence. But also there are many companies uh, which one or organizations like the NBA, which will make a lot of money if they can get access to the China market. So China knows that these people value money so much. So they use that to say, ah, if you do or say the wrong thing, we will punish you. And you will uh, not get access to the China market and you will lose billions of dollars. So if people are so keen. Then, of course, they will say, oh, OK, I'm a bad boy. I will shut up. Sorry, I will never do it again. And also, I will encourage others not to do it. So it is something that many countries, uh, not just America, MBA, you in Australia, your companies, your political parties, you've had. Cases of, you know, members of parliament, members of political party who have to resign because it's, uh, it's been uh, shown that they have received Chinese money. And so it is something that everybody has to be aware of. I mean, I am in favor of free trade, but you have to do it in a clean and accountable way, a very transparent way. And also you should demand reciprocity. No, you go to China to trade, you have scholars going there, politicians, journalists going there, but you don't get access to many things because that is not an open society. But when they come to your country, which is open, their academics, their politicians, their government officials, they get open access to everything. So why can't you demand reciprocity? Uh, If you are a free, open country and China's not, say, hey. Well, when our people come to your place, you give us the same treatment. But many do not get the same treatment and they don't say anything. Why? Because they get money. (laughs) Money will cover their mouths up. And that's a sad sad thing. People are willing to sell their souls because they want to get money. And China knows it. And not just in Australia, but in many other countries, even free and democratic countries. Because they are so crazy about the China market. Billions of dollars.
1: And so we talked a lot about sort of financial pressure there. One of the things that we've seen a bit, you know, from the backlash from Beijing against the protesters has been, um, we've seen, you know, the PLA uh, amassing on the border of Hong Kong. Uh, We've obviously had lots of arrests. But one of the things I'd be curious to hear about is uh, this question of face masks and the uh, the banning of face masks and why protesters are wearing them and what they're concerned about. Can you explain a little bit about that?
0: Now, first of all, you got the word wrong. It's not border, my friend. We are part of China. Sure. So it's a boundary. Oh, sorry, I got it. yep. <laughs> It's a boundary. And the face mask thing is, you know, again, it was a demand by the pro-Beijing politicians here in Hong Kong. They have been demanding it for quite a while. And Carrie Lam kept resisting because she should know. Everybody should know. It's counterproductive. If people who go out to protest, to fight with the police, they are not afraid of getting arrested, getting tortured and all that. Are they going to be afraid of just being arrested with the face mask on? They're crazy. So once the thing was passed, and it was passed not by ordinary procedure in the Legislative Council, they invoked the Emergency Regulations Ordinance, which was enacted in the 1920s, the last century, And the last time it was used was in 1967 uh, during the riots, which was triggered by the uh, Cultural Revolution in mainland China. So that's a historical relic. I actually moved to have that bill, that uh, ordinance repealed when I was in the council in 1996. But of course, I lost. So they retained that historical relic after the change of sovereignty. Of course, they had foresight. They knew one day they would need it. And of course, now they use it. And But it is no use. The people are not going to be afraid, not going to be uh, stopped by this law. It's crazy. And then, of course, they say, oh, all you foreign countries, you are hypocrites because you have faced mass laws in your country too. And now when we try to have it and then you criticize us. But our, our remark is, well, like what you just said. We don't have true democracy. <laughs> These countries which pass the face mask laws, they have a democratically elected parliament and they pass it, but we don't. And also we will say, people are not going to be intimidated, so forget it. In fact, people would be provoked even more. So you see our demonstrations, our marches now, most of them are wearing the mask. So <laughs> what good is the law?
1: And the reason for wearing the mask is that also partly about concerns about uh, facial recognition technology and surveillance.
0: Of course, of course, they don't want to be recognised by the police. Uh, they don't want to be arrested, but they're not afraid. Uh, many have been arrested. So, uh, but they and the police, the police also wear things that make them unrecognisable. They're supposed to have mm-hmm. their identity known, so that if people want the law to lodge a complaint. They can say, I'm complaining against a police officer, blah, blah, blah. But no, they are all covered up. So people say, oh, you are covered up and you don't allow us to be covered up. Oh, it's really terrible.
1: Well, well, I know that uh, you've got a very busy day ahead of you and very grateful for your time. So there's one last question that I always ask and you know, it's been very inspiring. And it's, a, as I always say, a very clunky segue to this question and particularly on this occasion. But... Um, foreign guests on the show, always ask them, um, you know, what three Australians would come to a a, a barbecue at Emily Lau's place. So who would would those people be and why?
0: Well, my dear friend, actually, I don't know too many Australians, So, uh, but I met several recently because they came to Hong Kong to interview me. And uh, I think I would like to (laughs) barbecue with them to discuss things more. One of them is the the, uh, senior or the foreign correspondent of 60 Minutes, uh, Liam Bartlett. And the other one is the ABC uh, Australia journalist, Hamish MacDonald. A third one is, I've not met him, but I've read about it. It's uh, Tim Norton. He's the chair of Digital Rights Watch, talking about attacks on press freedom in Australia and many attempts by the government to raid journalists' homes and offices and also to uh, get access to their metadata. And of course, press freedom is very close to my heart. I also understand that many Australians are not happy with the media, but that's no reason to just allow the government to run riot because once we lose press freedom, we lose freedom of expression we lose, many other freedoms will be at stake. Why? Because if there's no press to report and if you cannot put things on the social media, the people in power can do anything and many things and nobody will get to know about it. One reason why the Hong Kong protests have got such international attention and support is we still have press freedom. Any journalist here or from all over the world, they land in Hong Kong, they can immediately go to the site scene and have close ups of the protesters and close up of the police officers. All these scenes are very riveting. Just imagine if there's no press freedom. We would be like, you know, in Xinjiang, they say a million or more Uyghurs are being locked up. Have you seen war to war coverage of that? No, why not? Because there are no pictures. Pictures are very powerful. And the journalists help to bring us the pictures. So I hope you in Australia will defend your press freedom. And I would like to meet Tim.
1: Well, that is a very uh, prescient and important point to end on. So thank you so much for your time. Good luck in your struggle and good luck to the people of Hong Kong. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Before you run off, if you could quickly jump onto iTunes or your favorite podcasting app and give the show a rating and review, it would be really beneficial. Ratings and reviews help lift the rankings of the show, make sure that algorithms are recognizing the show and showing it to other people and spreading the word. Hope you enjoyed the episode and see you next time. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.